Do you collect Doctor Who? With over a hundred Target books stacked up, you are definitely a Doctor Who collector. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, a Direction Point Network podcast. I am Larry Van Mersbergen, your host, and I have been collecting Doctor Who, including Target books, for 40 years. With popular features like collection protection and the most outrageous offer, you can learn a lot about Doctor Who collecting. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travellers. I'm Nick Briggs, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the bloody task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. That's the one we used last time, so we're going to reuse it again. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a not-at-all-bloody three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes was not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, we welcome back to the podcast a novice fan who has not seen these episodes and has read very few of these books, the glamorous Jenny Ingersoll. Hello, Jenny. Hello. If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you've had to get a brand new spaceship in hyperspace to store them in. <laughs> I changed that one just a little bit. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, and Joseph Milton Welling. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. This time, you may have noticed, we're backtracking a little bit to cover a new edition of a novelization we've already covered, The Stones of Blood. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who The Stones of Blood, adapted by David Fisher from his script that aired from 10-28-78 to 11-18-78, published by Target Books in July 2022. As of this recording in July 2022, this title is in print and available as an unabridged audiobook, 195 pages. Now, we previously did this book in episode 105, the three of us. So the background that I'm going to give you this time is not going to be as extensive. I'm not going to give you background on the episode and the filming and all that. You could go back to the episode 105 discussion for that. But we covered what was for the longest time the only official version, which is the Target book, which was written by Terrence Dix, because who else is writing them? David Fisher, who died in 2018 notoriously disliked Dick's novelizations for a number of reasons, and he had very specific problems with Dick's novelization of The Stones of Blood. In particular, though I can't remember now where I read it, Dix had mistaken Cornish Fugus, which are underground dry stone structures built in Britain's distant past, for a person's name. Which is a pretty big error to make. <laughs> 
Yeah, so that's one thing, and there are a few others. This is one of many reasons he hated both this and Dick's version of the Androids of Tara, so much so that he wrote his own audio-only versions of the two books, which were made available from Audible in 2011. This one was read by the actress who plays Vivian Fay, Susan Engel. BBC Books decided this year to publish both of the audios as novels, which is where we get the current one from. There's still no audiobook of the Terence Dix version of this book, but the Audible version of this one is still available. Unfortunately, as of this recording, we still don't have the printed version, nope. which has been pushed back to ship in September for some goddamn reason. Oh. They pushed it back again? Yeah. Yeah, I got a I got an email from them saying, "Oh, you're not getting this till September 22nd." I was like, "You're fucking kidding me with this shit." But the Kindle version's available, which is fine and mm-hmm. great, but it means that I've had to buy this book six times now. <laughs> and wow. That's what we're discussing today. This book that I have bought six times. It, it's a good book, but it's not quite worth buying six times. Unfortunately, there's no back cover for us yet. But we'll do a dramatic reading of the description which we have for the book on Goodreads, which I believe is going to be the back cover text. So I will read that because I've gotten out of reading the back cover text for ages now. (laughs) It's up to you. Yep, I think so. The Doctor is delighted when his quest for the key to time leads him to his favorite planet Earth. But his friends are less enchanted. Romana is nearly lured to her death by a sinister apparition, and K-9 is all but destroyed by a belligerent boulder with the power to move and a thirst for blood. An ancient stone circle becomes a battleground as the Doctor must outwit the deadliest alien criminal this side of hyperspace and her bloody silicon servants. <laughs> the, the alliteration. Oh my god, whoever wrote this copy mm-hmm. was having a good time with it. <laughs> but when I read Silicon Servants, all I can think of is that 90s techno hit, Silicon Jesus. It's <laughs> playing through my head right now in belligerent boulders. <laughs> so, we've talked about your first impressions of the book previously, but this time I want your first impressions of the fact that we were reading this story again, which is slightly different than your first impression of the book. So Dalton, what was your first impression when you knew we were going to be revisiting this one? Well, I had remembered initially, and like you've already discussed, how David Fisher was not impressed with Terrence Dix's version. And if I'm remembering correctly, this was in that kind of long run. So yeah, it was a a much needed break from all of the Terrence Dix. And so yeah, just thinking, where is the guy who originally came up with this story going to take it? So I was I was very much looking forward to that and to seeing how it was going to be different. And a lot of it's pretty similar, but this felt like a, a good grade two or three higher than Terrence Dix's version for me. Okay. And Jenny, what was your first impression when you knew we were coming back to this one? Dalton, I had a very similar impression. I started reading and I had, again, left my notes on the original at home, which I wish I had because that would be a really interesting thing to compare. But even then, my impression was like, okay, well, I do remember this, but I also had this sense I didn't remember it as much as I thought. And I said, I don't know what that has to say about the previous novel, because I don't think it was that (laughs) long ago that we did this. I think I looked in my email and maybe saw that we had done it like in October of 21 or something. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, maybe like I, I remembered some parts, but I... It was almost that I thought, hmm, well, that's that's unfortunate. <laughs> I didn't remember as much as I did. And reading it again, I have the distinct impression that the the writing is just way more skillful. I liked the 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 preface to the foreword. That was really sweet. And thinking of like, oh, you know, I I don't think I've read any other David Fisher novelizations. And the the son, I that think that's who that's written by, has um, only good things to say about about his dad, who I'm like, he calls David, which I, I think is an interesting choice, but I, I guess I understand for readers, unless British people are running around being David, David, you know, to, to their daddies. Um, All of them call their daddies David, regardless of if that's yeah. their name or not. 
<laughs> but I, I thought, oh, well, you know, this person seems to have really devoted themselves to the writerly life. And I can tell because at first I thought I would feel really guilty if <laughs> the son had written this beautiful forward and then the story was shit. <laughs> but it wasn't. So <laughs> that was that was good. Right. And I'll admit to some trepidation in doing this because on the one hand, it came at just the right time because we're about to wrap up the Tom Baker era. And it would have been just really a pain in the ass to have to do these two books, say, when we were knee-deep in the Davison era or the Colin Baker era. So they came at just the right time, and they're fresh enough in our minds that we can do them. On the other hand, Jenny, you weren't on for the David Fisher novelization that we have read so far, but Dalton, you mm. were, and that's Creature from the Pit. Mm -hmm. And we were not as impressed with Creature from the Pit as we would have liked ah. to have been. No. No, because he was in that one trying very hard to do his best Douglas Adams, and he was kind of overdoing oh. it. Yeah. It was strange. Yeah, because Douglas Adams was the uh, script editor at that time. So he was trying to out Douglas Adams, Douglas Adams, and the book suffers as a result. But here, this is quite different. This is quite different. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the positives first. What did you like about this version or this book in general? <laughs> well, I think we, we all agreed last time that we adored Amelia Rumford. And I think she stands out just as strong in this version. Mm -hmm. Like She's still just as much of, a, a, of an interesting character, kind of a go-getter. And I think it comes across even better in this one. Mm-hmm. Even though her name is spelled differently. I don't get that. I honestly don't. She spelled it with an A in the last version, and it's with an E in this one. Not quite sure what's yeah, going on there. I was really impressed. And again, I think with the extra attention to, to detail for her character. There's so much internality and so many details that really flesh out who this person is. Like she shows up on on the moor and, and we get this academic perspective of her, which of course, um, having, you know, worked in academia myself is very enjoyable to me. But then we we know when she has to go into the, the cottage and take a look for the stones that she's feeling a little like scared about it so she has this vulnerability to her um and then we have all of her perceptions like oh is it possible to stitch them into the design of a tapestry mm -hmm. that we get a sense of her her ability like and in, in to think and be really savvy uh, and i don't believe that we had so many details of her in the original we did not mm -mm. Yeah, as a matter of fact, that's one way that this book is a vast improvement over the original, because obviously Terrence Six had nothing to do with the script of the original. So it's strictly a script-to-page transcription, which isn't necessarily bad, but it does mean that some of the weaknesses of this story are amplified when someone who hasn't written the story can't really speak to why this is happening or why this is happening or why this character is the way he or she is and in amelia's case oh my god she is so fleshed out in this version yeah oh i adore it especially this whole battle between the sexes thing that keeps coming up <laughs> yes yes which is so <laughs> of the times <laughs> it's it was so much in the zeitgeist uh, in 1978 and 79. And so for her to be saying all these desultory and terrible things about men, and then to have <laughs> to see that it comes from the other side, too, with one of the uh, Ogre's murder victims having uncharitable thoughts about his partner, about women, just before he dies, it's like, oh, okay, so this is not Fisher being misogynist or chauvinist. He's giving his characters the chauvinism each side, and that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that about this, because of course I'm sensitive to these issues. And by sensitive, I mean I just attune to them. I like to look at them. And right away, you know, the, the book begins with describing Romana as a female humanoid in the flesh of youth. And I'm like, oh, Christ, like, here we go. Um, <laughs> just like, what does that even matter? Like, uh, it's literally 0% relevant. But then as things go on, I'm like, oh, that that was utterly deliberate. Fisher knows who who these female characters are and what they're capable of. And he's playing both sides and trying to to draw this out. And I think it's like one of the 
probably the best handled sort of discussion of gender roles in a Doctor Who novelization that I've ever seen. Really? Oh, wow. Well, above the ones I've read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Well, that's true. But it's also, it. come to think of it, and Dalton can back me up here, it, it really has not come up that much in books. Mm-mm. I mean, we've talked about it, obviously, but the books themselves, especially the ones written by Dix, unfortunately, tend to cleave towards the male chauvinist view of things, just a tad bit, especially when it comes to the companions. No, you're absolutely right. Like, the book itself is not overtly talking about it. That's usually not common. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But here it's a definite theme, especially with this yeah. idea that Cesare of Diplos has been here for thousands of years and has essentially been this woman who, <laughs> she's every woman, to paraphrase yeah. Whitney Houston, that she has essentially been the most powerful woman in human history without anybody knowing about it, but not in the greatest way. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Them talking about the land being owned by a woman and how that would be just unreal and unheard of, but it's true. She did own the land. Mm -hmm. So exactly. That prologue is amazing, isn't it? Mm. Oh my god. You you don't get anything like that prologue in the Dix version. That's one of the points of comparison I did make. I went back to the Dix version, and it starts with that first sacrifice in the stone circle. It doesn't do any of the laying of the groundwork for this. And in Dick's defense, he couldn't have done it unless he made it all up himself. He's willing to do that with some books, not this one. Yeah. And I think that's where Fisher's probably thinking, oh, well, there were some missed opportunities here. And boy, has he plugged those holes. Yeah, I felt the same way. I really liked the just foreboding uh, tone of it. There's the shaman. What did the goddess want of him? Blood came the answer. It's like, oh, snap. This is another one of those times where I'm like, who's reading this? How old are these kids? (laughs) (laughs) This one, this book feels very much more adult. Yes. I can't remember where it was that I was reading. There's there's words in here that I didn't even know what they meant. I was like, really? who's <laughs> who's reading? I, or even this word, per, peremptory? Peremptory, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, I know what it means, but I'm like, if, if this is supposed to be for like 14-year-olds, I don't know that they're going to know um, even all of some of these words. Yeah. That's an SAT word, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or maybe there are some Britishisms here as well, things that I might know if I were a native British English speaker. Maybe that's another thing, too. I didn't know what a tour was until I was reading the context. And I'm like, oh, is is a tour like a kind of more? Like, I I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's very specific. And in fact, you can tell from this book, definitely, that David Fisher did a lot of research on Cornwall, which is where this Mm -hmm. appears to be set. Mm. And... Yeah. And of course, that research is not going to show up in Dick's book. As a matter of fact, Dick doesn't know what a Cornish Fugu is. How dare him? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's you can tell that Fisher is really deeply invested in the story in a way that Dix just couldn't have been. So obviously, it's going to have that layer of interest to it, which is just marvelous. In fact, in addition to Amelia, I want to talk about his depiction of Vivian Fay slash Cesare Diplos slash the Kaliak, because he also expands on that character significantly. What did you think of the uh, expansion on her? Yeah, she strikes me this time around as being much less of a femme fatale, which is the impression I remembered of her, her last time, that that was the only thing that... She was sort of this evil woman that you sort of suspected right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. There seemed to be more focus with her. Like Jenny said, before she felt just kind of like a femme fatale. She she was dangerous. But in this one, I feel like there's a little bit more reason behind why she's acting the way she is. And it gets fleshed out a little more. You kind of understand more about her especially since you know like we know she's been there for four thousand years and that she's been stuck and she's basically been kind of waiting for humanity to catch up exactly which is something that kind of gets lost in the original story i find definitely yeah you don't realize that the whole point of her staying on earth is because she can't go anywhere else until humanity has gotten to a point where she can actually fix that hyperspace craft Mm-hmm. and get wherever she's going but she is still a criminal yeah and she is still evil 
one thing that I find I, I, I'm a little sad about is, I, I think I said this last time, I had this pet theory that she and Amelia were romantically involved or that they were yes. just lesbians. <laughs> and there's no way that this version allows for that interpretation at all. I was really sad about that because I remember it was like, distinctly gay last time <laughs> it's like this could be a thing and here i'm like oh they ruined it they took it all out but but they didn't no <laughs> but no. they okay, didn't help us there's a line about amelia moving in to her house Ooh. rather quickly and Ooh. that feeds in which is horrible sorry if we have any lesbian listeners that feeds into that like stereotype that lesbians move quickly and they move in with each other so i didn't see it the first time tony but remembering that reading it this time i totally saw it oh okay. no maybe that's i i well i saw a tiktok so therefore it's real um, no like, i think that that's as you say like a trope it's um, a, yeah so what does a lesbian bring to a second date a u-haul yeah, yeah, that's the old joke. Yeah, um, yeah. Here, here's the line. It says, the, oh, prof- no. the professor had accepted her offer and moved into Vivian Faye's spare bedroom the very next day. It oh, was like a prayer answered. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I could see that then. I mean, I... Th- well, thank God. I think the main thing that made me think otherwise was Amelia's uh, reminiscing about her own relationships with Ben and how they'd all gone wrong simply because... They, the men could never figure out that they were wrong and she was right. <laughs> but yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean she's not in a lesbian relationship in her later life because she may have just said, okay, to, to hell with men. It's much easier to be with women, which makes some sense, yeah. actually. Because being with the woman, would they would realize when they were being wrong and they could, you know, mm-hmm. come to terms with that. There's also the bit about her visiting. Oh, Oh, yes, that's uh, right. saying Amelia is going to visit uh, Vivian. Right. When she's turned into a stone. Um, yeah. yeah, there's that bit where she says that she's going to go out to the stone circle and talk to her, which is what people around there expect of her being the old academic that she is. And mm-hmm. it's like, that's that's actually very sweet. That despite almost being killed by her former housemate, which I have some experience of. Uh, she still <laughs> likes her enough. She still likes her enough to be able to say, yeah, I'll visit you in prison. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I feel better now. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's again, it's like reading it the first time. No, I didn't pick up on any of that. But reading it this time, I was like, oh, yeah, there, there's definitely that there more. Which makes me wonder, was it initially supposed to be there? And it's something that is, again, being hinted at without being super overt. Mm -hmm. Well, I I think a lot of that goes back to the performance on screen. Mm -hmm. Because Susan Engel, when she delivers the line, no, don't, Amelia, don't make me kill you. It's this very kind of gentle statement that you could tell Mm -hmm. that she would have some regret overdoing it. Whereas... Fisher rewrites that line slightly in this version, so that it comes at the end of a rant. And so it doesn't feel as gentle. Mm. Yeah, it's more of, don't make me kill you. Yeah, it's more mm. like that. But I, yeah, I, I can still see it. So that that's good. I, I feel better now. There needs to be <laughs> more of that sort of representation in novels like this. Yeah. Well, because it, it just could not have, at, at this time, it would not have been written about overtly. No. Like, am I... Mm-mm. Correct in thinking that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. How about the way the Dr. Romana and K-9 are handled? Go for it, Dalton. <laughs> I, I was going to say, um, the this is kind of the beginning of the doctor kind of being mean towards canine or one of the first, one of the first instances of that yes. that I recall. Mm-hmm. But, but in this version, it's, it seems more playful. Yeah. It doesn't seem as rude and as, um, as cutting as it could seem in some other stories, mm-hmm. which I think is good because I, anytime I've ever felt that happening, it feels very uncharacteristic. It, the fourth doctor is kind of goofy and clownish and I could see him making jokes towards canine, but totally just in jest. 
but some of the books we've read, they come off as really mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and any humor that's behind that, that's supposed to be there, is totally gone. Yeah. And this time, it's definitely there. And to some degree, it's justified because Canine could be a, a bit of a smug little asshole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's like the doctor's just giving it back. I still don't understand where Romana and Vivian are. Hyperspace. Hyperspace. Mm. Hyperspace is an extension to the special theory of relativity propounded by Einstein. Einstein's no, theory. No, no, okay, now King Nine. Don't overstring your data banks. You're not fully recovered yet. Secretary regeneration, seventy-five percent completed. Yes, well, didn't I give you some calculations to be getting on with? Calculations cannot be completed until you have finished constructing the equipment. All right. All right. Why don't you stop interrupting me and let me get on with it then? He's a terrible old gas bag. I still don't understand about hyperspace. Well, who does? I do. Oh, shut up, canine. Yeah, there's this part where the doctor trips over canine and the canine greetings, master. And the doctor is complaining, why can't you bark or something so people know that you're there? And canine's like, I am not programmed to bark, master. And I'm like, <laughs> is that just factual or is that a little sass? Because I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, even when he's kind of mad, then later on, he's like, oh, good dog. You know, he's or he says, well, you should be programmed to work. So that's not your fault. Um, <laughs> so there's a little bit more tempering of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Fisher's given canine uh, and his dialogue a lot more personality. I mean, he has personality already. I mean, you've got that scene where he almost kills himself trying to keep them safe from the ogre. Mm-hmm. But there's also and I love this bit towards the end when Amelia and K-9 are waiting for them to come back from hyperspace Amelia wants to go up to the ship K-9's like you know having an aging academic up there is not going to help the situation and they're arguing about it when everybody else shows up and I love that idea that they're just sitting there arguing with each other until someone materializes in front of them yeah, bits like that are brand new, and I, I'm just on board with that sort of added characterization, and I really wish the original had had it, but yeah, I understand Dix was tired. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another bit is in the beginning when they're talking about tennis. <laughs> Romana just yeah. tells him to forget it, and then it's as literal as ever. Canine obeyed his instructions <laughs> to the letter. He erased all information about tennis, real lawn, and table from his memory banks. <laughs> so there is that kind of nod and understanding that that yes, Canine is just a robot dog, and he is going to do things very matter of factly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So exactly, <laughs> and I think one of the problems we may have had last time with this story is that this is one of the first stories where Romana is essentially a damsel in distress at times. Yes. And it Mm. doesn't feel that way this time, even though she's just as menaced this time and taken prisoner by Vivian Fay and all of that as she was last time, but it feels different for some reason. Yeah, there are things that happen to her, but it's it's like these things would be upsetting to anybody if it happened to them rather than like, oh, no, I've fallen and I'm just going to ride here on the ground. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I still love that they kept in the bit about her shoes because I remembered that specifically. And I'm like, good. I'm glad that she still is like wanting to trounce around the, the moors in style. Um, yes. And then kind of getting the better of it. Yeah. And Fisher pays her the best compliment through the doctor. Because this line isn't in the original. Because Amelia says something along the lines of, do you think those people with the beds scared her or something? And the doctor says, I can't see a bunch of oddballs wrapped in bedsheets scaring Romana. She's as tough as the old boots she ought to be wearing. (laughs) (laughs) And that is brilliant, because the doctor already has some respect for her feistiness. And yeah, Mm -hmm. that's that's just a lovely characterization. I do love the line, too, um, initially when we're talking about the shoes. It says, Romana glanced down at the high-heeled slingback sandals she had found in the TARDIS's wardrobe. She rather liked them, not least because they added height to her stature. Never a bad thing when standing up to the doctor. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) So the fact that she's wearing them because they make her taller as well is like, yes, of course. (laughs) And we get so much more of Romana's internal dialogue, such as when they invite her back for buttered scones, and she thinks she'd never wanted a buttered scone more in her life, whatever that was. (laughs) 
like, yeah, I, I don't blame you, girl. I could use a buttered scone myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I love how the women have this affinity for each other. I liked it back then and I like it now. Um, you know, oh, isn't that just like the doctor to go and talk to the rise and you, you just come on with me, dear. There's, I don't know, there's kind of an ensemble cast quality to the story that I enjoyed before and enjoyed again mm-hmm. that usually I mean there there always are but it's like people get split up and then they only ever seem kind of on their own missions and there's so much running through spaceship hallways and things that you seem to lose the characterization and you don't with this one exactly mm-hmm. yeah in fact there is a lot more of that sort of thing and that's something that Fisher has really gone to town on with this book and i adore that oh martha martha (laughs) that's right we needed to talk about martha because we talked about her last time and how she was kind of into devries and this time it's given a little more weight still not quite enough but it's there enough to know that oh if the if the bids are having orgies which is mentioned at one point Uh then she's definitely there for that and a little bit of background on that character too i just hope that the original actress never sees his description of her looking like a discontented bulldog (laughs) that's just awful that yeah. that actress does not look like that. <laughs> what else? What else did we like? I just like the bit about her dad like murdering every animal in England, <laughs> but people were different. Um, yes. that, I don't know. I found that entertaining. Yes, <laughs> at least you at least you were safe with daddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, daddy. Which which implies which also I'm like ooh, daddy Devry. Like it, it was just like a little bit of something there going on that I liked. Yeah, there's the implication that you're not as safe with DeVries, at least not anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, the Megara. We need to talk about the Megara. They get their own little chapter this time. We, yes. We get some discussion of why they exist, how they exist, and then we get them. And part of the problem I remember that we had last time, and part of the problem that people always have with the story, and I'm one of them, even though I adore the story to bits is that it does start off as this English countryside druid horror nightmare. And then it turns into this science fiction-y court drama. Yes. And that shift is kind of difficult to traverse, if that makes sense. It feels Mm. less jarring this time. And I think it's because Fisher puts that chapter in. Because otherwise you're not prepared for them showing up and for that whole thing coming. But as soon as you get it, it's like, oh, why is he telling me about this? Oh, there it is. How do we feel about the Megara in this version? I don't feel too dissimilar this time about them. They're still a little mouthy for me. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess that's the point. Yeah. I felt that the the interlude chapter did help because you're right before I was just like, what the hell are these? And it just, it, it felt a little, I mean, it, I, I don't know. Do the Megara ever come up in other books aside from this one? No, never. Okay. Never. Okay. So then my reaction of feeling like it was yet another droid from like the George Lucas mind of the Star Wars <laughs> sort of universe was <laughs> that I was just like, oh, here's another one. Like, here's another thing. Um, that was sort of precious and and got put in here, but for no reason. I definitely felt less that way mm-hmm. um, with the the interlude chapter, and I I agree with you, Dalton, that I still would sort of prefer it that the mouthiness to go on a little less than it does. I I'm just not a fan of like in fiction long bits of dialogue. Uh, I like it more in just dispersed with the narrative, but uh, it was better. It was better for me. Yeah. yeah. And something I noticed too is that if there was a plot hole in the original, Fisher's filled them all up. One of them, and this was a big one, and it's one that's bothered me ever since seeing the story originally, is this idea that the Megara were not able to recognize the Sarah of Diplos without the arresting officer saying this is who she is. And that's mm-hmm. why yeah. they're not going to execute her uh, the, her sentence immediately. And Fisher takes care of that and says there are plenty of alien species in the galaxy that can change form. So a visual representation like a photo or a hologram is not going to do it. 
you need somebody who can actually be a physical witness and say, yes, this is the person I arrested. That's like, okay, that, that actually works in the universe. We've got Zygons who can change form. And there are mm-hmm. plenty of other alien creatures that can do this. The Rutans, for instance, from uh, Horror Fang Rock can do it. So it's like, okay, that makes sense. There are a few of those seeming plot holes that he takes care of. Oh, the, the, that's it, the raven. The raven and the crow. They get mentioned in episode one, you see one. They get mentioned in episode two, they never come up again. And you're like, what the fuck was that about? <laughs> was that just a plot thread that got dropped at some point? That's like, no, no. No, that actually is Cesare of Diplos's control of the segment of the key to time controlling the birds that's like oh okay that that works that's that's very nice i like that yeah i i, I kind of like it when things come together a little bit more like that yeah and it, it doesn't take much to explain it but missing that little detail has us sitting here just like what the fuck yeah what 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 <laughs> yes even even the bit about the ogre and why it is that they don't attack Vivian, and why they're enthralled to her to begin with. It's like, oh, okay, they're cannibals, so they would turn on each other if they weren't given blood often enough, so that's why she has to give them blood. That's where the whole blood sacrifice thing comes from. It's like, okay, all right, that makes sense. We like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't notice a lot of of glaring holes, and of course the this seems apparent, but when you have 195 pages or just just more than last time, then we have more room to to state all of this. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. think it's like my regret, I suppose that, and and this is for a number of reasons because we've talked about the novelizations being a novelization of a television script, and you can't do character internality. And kind of all the things that make a novel pleasurable to read on the screen as much, you end up with like a weird Holden Caulfield-esque like or or, um, 1940s detective, you know, thing where you're somehow doing like a voiceover inside of a character's head. It just doesn't uh, it doesn't often come off well. So Mm -hmm. there's all the the scripts are are very action oriented, right? Someone running over here and someone getting trapped in in this meat grinder and and (laughs) then when you're putting that in a book, it's like, who are these people? And why do I even care that they're running down these hallways or getting meat grinded? But in this case, once we've added about 50 pages of of characterization, now it all matters a lot more to us. Exactly. And Dix is willing to do that, but only for certain writers and only in certain periods of his career, as we've noted. Hmm. That run of dicks that we had recently, he's he's at the point where he's just transcribing away. And to his credit, of course he was because he was under deadline and some of these books he was writing in under a month, yeah. which is insane. Yes. So, yeah, you can understand it. But there's a very inappropriate joke running through my head right now that it would have been very appropriate for dicks to fill in some holes. But, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's been a while since I've done that, but... There you go. I mean, the, oh, no. the, the made, making the joke, not, you know, filling. Oh, oh good Lord. Okay. <laughs> In, now we know. Yes, open mouth, insert foot, close mouth. Okay, there we go. Uh, speaking of jokes, um, the humor. There's a lot more humor in this version. And this is something we didn't like about Creature from the Pit because the humor seemed forced. Mm. How does the humor strike you in this? It comes across better. It feels tempered. It doesn't feel out of place. Creature from the Pit, like we said, felt like David Fisher doing a bad... (laughs) My mind. Douglas Adams. (laughs) Yes, Douglas A bad Douglas Adams. But this feels appropriate. This is not like jumping the shark. And I wonder, too, if, you know, given that there was, what, 30 years probably between the the production of the televised story and his writing for the audiobook mm-hmm. that yeah maybe he had some time to come into his own as a writer and not feel like he has to emulate something else or he had some time between dealing with douglas adams that that's not on his mind anymore i don't know but it, it feels like it works and it feels like it works compared to some of the other stories that weren't douglas adams stories but that also had humor mm-hmm. in them 
right? As a matter of fact, interesting you should mention that because we're going to be doing his renovelization of Androids of Tara next, obviously. But then we'll go back into Tom Baker's last season. And that season starts with a David Fisher script, which he himself novelized. So these, this book, the next book, and the one after that are going to be David Fisher. So we'll be able to compare them and see, going back to something that he wrote at the time, yeah. to see whether or not this whole thing of his coming into his own as a writer is actually the case. I, I suspect it is. Yeah. I know that he was an accomplished writer at the time, but probably he was thinking, if Douglas Adams was willing to take all the jokiness out of my script, I'm going to put it back in, and then some. And Douglas Adams is not around anymore for him to try to make that point with anymore. Yeah. Because there's some great jokes in this. Yeah, I thought the humor was, was wonderful. I just liked all the times that the doctor was talking about things in sotto voce. I don't know if that's how you pronounce yes. it. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Just there's like a visualizing it of him, you know, kind of speaking to his side of his hand. But then like the, the narrative was calling attention to how ridiculous that was. Um, <laughs> there were really very many good lines. Mm-hmm. And even Cesare Diplos's I hate having to call her that every time. I just want to call her Vivian. Vivian's reaction when they tell her, have you anything to say before sentence is passed? She doesn't get (laughs) a line in the original, but here she says, yes, kill him first. (laughs) (laughs) Which is totally characteristic because at this point she is so like fed up with the doctor's shenanigans (laughs) that it's like, well, whatever. If I'm going to die, I don't care, but I want to see him dead. Yes. (laughs) But she says she wants his body after he's been killed. It's like, when can I have it? (laughs) Oh, yeah. And you're right, Dalton, it doesn't feel out of place at all. It works with the way he has set up these characters. And that's something that wasn't always the case in the original. So it's great. And it works given that this story has some really terrifying descriptions of like body horror things happening to people and like eyeballs being pecked out and oh, the yeah. the campers being like dissolved into the ogre. Oh god, that is so much worse in this version. Oh, that is chilling. But then you you have all these light funny parts, but it it works together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absorbing <laughs> them and then spitting out the bones. Like owl pellets. Like yeah. owl pellets, yes. <laughs> and you're like, holy shit. Of course, we never do get the answer to the big question, which is how these stones move around or crush people or how they get up from crushing people once they have crushed them. But again, it's one of those things, repeat to yourself, it's just a show, I should really just relax. Not everything can be explained, but... (laughs) I just imagine them rolling. I mean, there's the joke about the rolling stones, like... (laughs) (laughs) Except they're, they're monoliths. So it would be impossible for them to roll unless they, they rolled end to end. They sideways. And then... <laughs> yeah. Like a rolling pin. Oh, good yeah, like God. A that's, ter- that's an even more terrifying image, come to think of it, because you just see this thing rolling end over end at you, and it's going to take out all of your blood if it gets you. It's like, oh, God. Yeah, I don't imagine them rolling oblong, like, <laughs> top to bottom. I imagine they fall over or something like that and roll like a log. Yeah, so yeah. they're not they're not dominoes, <laughs> in other words. They're more no, like those no. things you used to turn with uh, the two sticks, whatever that um, toy is. Oh, God, I hated those things. I mean, that would be absolutely terrifying, too, but that would be much easier to uh, dodge. Right. And it's, <laughs> it's also something they would not have been able to realize on screen at all so no no (laughs) (laughs) yeah i was with you dalton like there's and this isn't a critique it's just like okay so and and maybe i'll have to rely on your knowledge a little bit that originally what age group were they thinking was going to read this book (laughs) oh the original novelization um this always comes up and i've always thought it was nine to 16 year olds (laughs) nine okay sorry yeah so like 
there's that. And then, so I'm like, okay, fine. And then I can see, you know, Fisher gets a hold of it. He's like, I want to do this right. He does it right. And then ages it a little bit. So that now to me, it's a little bit more towards that 16 year old kind of, of end. But even still, I do sometimes think here, I'm like, well, he had fun. But who is this for? Like, who who is going to be reading? Who is the sci-fi for? And then the dissolving of humans and the pecking out of eyeballs. And then these big words. And I don't know, having empathy with an aged professor whose relationships haven't gone well. I'm like, <laughs> this just seems like it's for a whole lot of different people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, that, again, that's not really a critique because I'm just glad that Fisher had fun with it. But I do sort of wonder, like, would there be anybody who would read this and not be disinterested or confused by at least one part of it? Um, especially if it was a young person. I, I have a hard time imagining a 16-year-old reading this and not just skimming through a lot of the parts. Well, the, the target audience, uh, no pun intended, for these books originally was younger readers. Okay. But as you probably noticed, when we've read any books that were written in the 80s, and published in the 80s, regardless of whether they were adaptations of 60 stories or not, you can see that the prose has aged up by that point. Mm. That's not true of Dix's books from the 80s, but it is true of things we have read, like The Massacre, or The Gunfighters, or any of those novels where the original writers from the 60s have been asked back to do them, or even where somebody like Nigel Robinson has gotten hold of an original script and is doing it for an audience in the 80s. Everyone by that point is aware that young readers will still read these. They can handle Mm -hmm. a lot more than they're credited with being able to handle. And I think that is true. I think that's why Ian Martyr, for instance, always had to be reined in, because (laughs) he was always trying to put in sexual content in his books, and (laughs) Nigel Robinson was like, no, 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 you can't can't put in a fellatio joke in The Rescue, even though it's still there, essentially. (laughs) Once again, we can spit out the bones, but we can't make a sex joke. Yeah. Okay, culture. Okay. I, I think in this case, though, David Fisher is definitely aware and the editor of the book who writes the afterword for this book made him aware that the target audience for target books anymore and for novelizations is not that younger age group anymore any of the official bbc releases of older scripts that we've read have all been skewed much older and they're aware that adults read these and are probably more avidly fans of these than younger readers Mm -hmm. would be I would have no trouble giving this book to a nine-year-old, though. I really wouldn't, because I would have read these as a nine-year-old and not have been terribly phased by it. I was watching the show as a nine-year-old, so if I could handle it, then I'm sure even the coddled nine-year-olds of today could do it. And they see a lot more online. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I remember reading Goosebumps stories around that age that are pretty gruesome you know a lot of them have this this monkey's paw or like deal with the devil aspect where like even though things are fixed in the end everyone still gets screwed over Mm -hmm. (laughs) so hearing about people being sucked into a rock it wouldn't really have faced me as a nine-year-old it it happens (laughs) it happens all the time you get sucked into a rock (laughs) yeah Yeah. you know yeah yeah (laughs) see that's interesting because i was like a child who is terrified of the Crypt Keeper. And I don't, I don't know that I would choose to to give this to um, to myself. Mm. Um, not Maybe not totally because of the violent bits, but, but just kind of everything that goes on. I definitely would have skipped over the Megara. I've been like, whatever, what happens to, to Vivian Faye? Um, yeah. I would have skipped it. Right. Well, let's talk then about the things you felt didn't work as well, if there was anything. Because I have something in mind, but I want to hear y'all's thoughts first. I don't have a lot to to pick with. I mean, things have, have gotten better. So aside from my critique of sort of the un, that unevenness of tone, which isn't really necessarily a critique, mm-hmm. I, I'd be interested to hear what you think, Dalton and Tony. No, I can't think of anything. Like, I, I had one note where DeVries calls the doctor the doctor before he introduces himself. And I just have to know, like, how did he know that? But it goes it goes back and like explains that the crows and the birds are basically being controlled by Vivian Faye, so they're communicating somehow. So it's like, oh, okay, well that explains it. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, there I, we didn't, go. I didn't really have anything that, that I thought was like super egregious. Yeah, in fact, that part that you were just talking about, Dalton, is in the original. But Dix has the doctor ask DeVries earlier how he knew his name than Fisher does. Fisher leaves that for a little bit to stew in your mind for a bit. And then you realize, oh, the doctor noticed it too. He's just yeah, playing yeah. along with it, which is actually a better way of doing it. I, I just thought mm-hmm. of something else that that other thing that I was trying to think of that Fisher uh, sealed a plot hole. Why the Megara are sealed away during the voyage? It's not explained why they're left in that compartment. Oh yeah, yeah. And he explains well. It's because they're justice machines and they don't want any sort of witness tampering during the trip. And it's like okay, that actually makes some sense now. Good. Okay, that works. Yeah, I accept that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. There are two things, and only two things, that I have trouble with in this book. The first one is <laughs> the description of Diplos. Uh, wait, not Diplos. Diplos is the planet that's in the system. I think it's Tau Ceti, they say. That there are 750 planets in the system. Mm-hmm. 750 planets in <laughs> one star system. Mm-hmm. It's like, um... No. <laughs> Solar systems do not work that way. <laughs> so that's a that's a minor quibble. But there is one that uh, Dave Davies will bring up in his Goodreads comment and review. And that's the bit about Joselito and the, the bullfighter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I didn't have any problem with it until I read Dave's comment on it. And then I was like, yeah, why is the Doctor a fan of bullfighting? That doesn't seem like the sort of thing the Doctor would ever be into, because it's basically killing an innocent animal for sport, yeah. right? So why would he ever like that sort of thing? Maybe he maybe he met Joselito when he was still the second Doctor, who we've already established is actually a closet <laughs> maniac, but yes. <laughs> that could be it. Mm-hmm. But that's about it for me. Yeah, there's there's so much to like here. I, I'm just going through my notes now and seeing that image of Amelia covered in flour, poking in a jar of pickled onions with a knitting needle. <laughs> That's just brilliant. Yeah, that was my favorite scene by far. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's just so much to like in this one. And so it surprises me. There's still that jarring shift. When it shifts from being the, you know, druid English countryside horror story to being more science fiction-y. But then that was always there, and that's a structural problem that you can't really get around. So it's, of course, going to be incorporated in this version. What else do we want to say about this one? I'm just looking through notes. I I have so many little quips and things. Um, When the doctor's showing Amelia how to use the machine, the doctor's explaining how to use the machine, and he says, but remember, you've only got 30 seconds before you must switch off again. If you wait too long, pow. (laughs) Pow, queried the professor. (laughs) It's a technical expression, meaning that all this beautiful microcircuitry will fuse into a puddle of molten metal about the size of my fist. (laughs) Yes. I, Tom Baker uses some weird onomatopoeia there. He says that yeah. all the metal will go into this <laughs> of, <laughs> and he just makes a sound instead of the thing. That yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just silly. Yeah. I have similar little bits that I thought were, were so funny. I really like when the doctor is talking about Romana toppling into the briny. That one just <laughs> got me. Um, <laughs> I liked that. And oh, I found my my word, internecine. Internecine. Like, yes, I've never heard that word. Internecine <laughs> prior struggles. To this book. Yeah. Like, yeah, internal like infighting. Yeah. That I said, oh yes, this is the perfect word to describe what this is, and totally new to me, and not <laughs> one that I expect most readers would know. Um, especially not a sixteen-year-old reader. But yeah, that was a uh, an example. Well, you know what, Dix and Fisher <laughs> both would have said. They would have said any child who's reading this book should look it up. (laughs) Yeah. And they do, luckily. It's true. Yep. Well, shall we go to Goodreads? Let's shall. Let's let's do it. I could sit here all day and read 
things I have highlighted. Yeah, so. yeah, there's so <laughs> many of them. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews, the book written by other readers, and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when you get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is four 4.36. Okay. That may be one of the highest rated books that we've done. Yeah. yeah. That is really, really impressive. Now, granted, there are only like eight reviews on Goodreads right now because not everybody has the book. Mm. But the reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives us four stars and says, I haven't enjoyed David Fisher's books very much so far, so I expected this one to be a chore. To my astonishment, it was anything but. There are quite a lot of added scenes, and I would expect the pace to be a lot slower than either the TV version or the Terrence Dix book. It did take me a bit longer to read this version, but only because there was more of it, not through any reluctance to read it. By the way, I finished this book in a day. That's how much I enjoyed it. Uh, just mm-hmm. yeah, that's totally possible. Yeah, it was it was just a, a as Dalton as you used to say a quick read and a fun read. <laughs> it was definitely that for me. Uh, yes. Back to what Dave is saying, uh, there were a couple of things I didn't like right at the beginning after his son's introduction, telling us that David Fisher's favorite part of writing was the research. We find rabbits on the site of the nine or six or seven travelers four thousand years ago. There's no mention of rabbits in Britain in any document until after the Norman Conquest of 1066. (laughs) Then again, in the Doctor Who universe, we had Sarah Jane peeling potatoes in medieval England centuries before they were brought over. My other gripe is about the bullfighting. On TV and in the earlier book, it's a passing reference and a frivolous one, but here the Doctor seems to be a fan of matadors. I found this very jarring, as I feel certain the Doctor would take the side of the bull. One other very minor complaint I wouldn't have seen had I not been looking for it, the tautology of Cornish Fugu, because Fugus are, by definition, Cornish, is more obvious to me, at least, because the story is now set in Cornwall, whereas its uh, location was left vague in the other versions. Mm. The trivial nature of these complaints should give an idea of how much I enjoyed it. If not, a score of 3.75 rounded up to 4 should help. Mark also gives us four stars and says, The book itself is about a third longer than the original Dick's version and fills in background details and builds a characterization to give a fuller picture of the story. Having had a look at my Dick's version of the story, I can say that the Dick's version stays mainly to the script dialogue. Whichever version you read, the story is straightforward, and even in the longer version is told with an impressive minimum of fuss and directness that makes me think we should have more of this these days. At about 200 pages, it's a book read in an afternoon and great fun. The Tom Baker Doctor always has an impish quality that makes me feel that although things are bad and dangerous, you will be safe with him by your side. The prose here reflects that. I very much felt it was Tom Baker in the role here. It has been a while since I've seen the original television production, but the fact that this book made me want to watch it again can only be a good thing. And finally, Gordon Watson gives it four stars and says, Very enjoyable. Appears to stick very closely to TV version. A story I have always enjoyed watching, so it was a great pleasure to read this version. So, Jenny, out of five stars, what would you give this and why? I'm of two minds, because on the one hand, I think having read the Dick's version, this is much better executed. And and so that makes me want to just say, like, like being a, a teacher, like, oh, I read the first draft, read the second draft, second is better, five out of five. Like, it right. makes me want to, to be very complimentary. And then there's another part of me that still just the, the end with the Megara, it's kind of not, I don't know, that somehow or another, I wish that there could be a different ending to this. It, I wish that the Moors and all of our our adventures there are so pleasurable. I do wish that we could kind of stay there. But that's more just a, a preference rather than a critique of actually how the story was intended to be. So I don't know. Oh, and I can't remember what, what all I've I've done in the past anymore. It feels like it's been a while. Um, I'll, 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 I'll go four and a half out of five. All right. Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this? 
I would give this one a four. I don't think it's as strong as some of the other stories that I've ranked higher, but I do think it's a marked improvement upon Terrence Dick's version. And that's not to say that Terrence Dick can't write a good book, but I very much remember his version of Stones of Blood not being up to par with some of his other books. I think this one is a great melding of the science fiction with the horror elements. It's funny and spooky, and I think it gets a lot of the characters right. So, yeah, I'd give it a four. Okay. And I would also give it a four for just the reasons that both of you have said. There are still flaws in it. There's still flaws in the story, and I've already talked about what the biggest flaw is, which is that shift halfway through. And there's no getting around that. That being said, it's not script to page. In fact, there are vast swaths of the original story that have been changed, not so much in the particulars, but in the dialogue and in the descriptions in such a way that it really does come across as a new and fresh take on the story. Which is, again, one of my favorite stories, despite those flaws. So I can't exactly say bad things about it. That, and as we've already pointed out, David Fisher isn't trying as hard to be funny here. Uh And he's succeeding in doing it by not trying as hard. This is an incredibly enjoyable book. And I've already started Androids of Tara, and it's already shaping up to be similar, so I'm very much looking forward to that. So, yeah, four stars. Well, thank you all, Mm -hmm. and thank you fellow time travelers for giving us your valuable time. Next time we'll be doing the other David Fisher reissue, when we look again at the Androids of Tara, which is a book we really didn't like last time. In the meantime... If you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with those spaces. Also feel free to follow us on Twitter, we're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.